From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, February 4th. It's about 9 a.m. on a weekday morning at the Center Street Gym. Wiffle ball-like objects are flying across two nets in the middle of the space. A few people wielding paddles are going back and forth in a rally. And fresh players begin to file in through the double doors, adjusting their sneakers before they hit the makeshift courts. Some, like Kay Fitz, have been here for hours. Yes, I'm Kevin Fitzgerald. They know me as Kay Fitz. Ah, that's right, that's my handle. <laughs> ah, the pickleball courts. We're at Open Pickleball at the Center Street Gym, and everyone here seems eager to play. Fitzgerald has been playing since, well, early this morning. And his enthusiasm for the sport and explaining it has not waned. Oh yeah, there's strategy, an amazing amount of strategy. Um, If you play a lot, uh, you know, uh, there's a thing called the dink. And there's a kitchen. You can't go inside the kitchen unless the ball bounces. But when you're dinking, you're hitting it really soft, just over the net, just a little bit over the net. And and it's, it's really cool because you can go from side to side, back to forth. But, you know, if you, if you get a high dink, you can slam the ball, and, you know, it's so quick. It's a very, very quick sport. Pickleball combines elements of tennis, badminton, and ping pong. According to USA Pickleball, it was invented by three dads looking for something their families could play one summer in the 1960s. And in the last decade, it's really been taking off. People are just getting incredibly excited about the sport. Everyone keeps hearing about it. We're going to be well over Five million players in the United States playing the sport. Our year-over-year growth is just incredible. Laura Gaynor is with USA Pickleball. There are now tournaments across the country for the sport. At the Center Street Gym, I kept hearing the same thing from players, that pickleball is the fastest-growing sport in the nation. If you search pickleball in your browser, dozens of articles will come up with that headline. Gainer confirms. I think we're just at the beginning of the growth of pickleball because, you know, we are the fastest growing sport in the nation. We've heard more of it over the last couple of years. There's media articles every day popping up that communities are getting funding for new courts. New courts are opening. People are rallying together. Um, we have hundreds of thousands <laughs> of pickleball players that are so passionate about the sport and so helpful to their community. And they're really rallying to get more courts for all of us passionate players. She says a number of things are contributing to the sport's popularity. It's multi-generational. It's not as physically demanding as a sport like tennis, so grandpa can play with his grandkids. It's a sport that can be played outside, always important during a pandemic. It's largely accessible. You just need a paddle and you're ready to play. And increasingly, it's something people can do when they are traveling. Gainer is actually launching a new business based on these pickleball travelers. I'll be showing like the best places to play pickleball, showing the fun, active lifestyle that it is. So featuring people and their families, I call my sun seekers. <laughs> I was just looking right before talking with you, like, oh, where can I go play in Utah? Because that's one of our top destination wishes for my family. We have a family of four and people are just really changing their tourist destinations, their family vacations, dependent upon pickleball events, tournaments where they can go take lessons. So I think just from there, it's going to just exponentially continue to grow. We have people in the summertime that travel from all over the nation that come to Moab to play pickleball. Kay Fitz again. We have people from Florida, people from Alaska, people from Maine, people from California. We have a really big group from Colorado. They're skiing right now, or you'd see eight more players here from Colorado. 
They come here to see arches, they come here to see Canyonlands, and then they come here in the morning to play pickleball before they go into the parks. And it's really, really cool. Moab might already be on the pickleball traveling circuit, but the city currently doesn't have any dedicated courts to the sport. The regular players make it work at the Center Street Gym, and others meet at the tennis courts, chalking lines to pickleball standard. But once you have courts that are dedicated to pickleball, you'll see it just go bonkers. It'll go bananas. And within less than a year, we'll be having tournaments and and whatnot. Steve Russell helped launch the pickleball meetups in Moab years and years ago. Type in where can I play pickleball in Moab into places to play pickleball.org and it's Russell's phone number that pops up. He and others have been working to get dedicated pickleball courts somewhere in the valley for years. It's good economically. I mean, pickleball players used tend to be a little bit older. They got money and all they want to know coming to Moab is can we play? And, and if we have dedicated courts, then they'll be full all the time. I can almost promise you that. The time for pickleball courts in Moab might be on the horizon. Moab City's Parks and Recreation Department secured an $80,000 grant for the courts that will need to be matched by Moab City. And the council recently approved Old City Park for the location. We went through um, criteria like land ownership, parking, restrooms, um, how close it was to town, if it was compatible with uses, um, if we could expand in the future. Parks and Rec Director Annie McVeigh during a city council meeting this month. She says they are currently targeting the south side of the old city park gravel parking lot for the courts. That's because they didn't want to take up any green space. And also we didn't want to eliminate any existing uses in our parks. And so by the process, the old city park was the one that had met all the criteria. And it's also a beautiful location. But there's a few more hoops to jump through before dedicated pickleball players start heading to Old City Park. Moab City has to develop a site design and more detailed project costs. Plus, get environmental clearances. If those are done, McVeigh says construction could start this fall or next spring. It is important for the rec department to think about the local community. and what benefits this age population health-wise to get out, to meet people, to socialize. Longtime pickleball player LaDonna Davidson. Moab gets visitors who want to play pickleball, but she says there's this core group of local passionate players that just want some room to grow. For her, what started as casual pickup games has turned into real friendships. It's a nice way for a community to grow and become close with each other because I mean, where are you going to meet a lawyer, a welder, a bus driver, you know, she's head of the bus drivers now, a realtor. Where are you going to meet those people otherwise? So it's great. It's really nice. I think it ties the community together. Davidson encourages anybody of any age to join them. Many players said you can get into it in about 15 minutes. Moab's pickleball players currently meet Wednesdays, Fridays, and Sundays. More information in the show notes. Kava is a plant used to make a traditional drink that's consumed throughout the diverse cultures of Polynesia. Here in Utah, it continues to connect people across cultures. Emma Fates, with our partners at Utah Public Radio, has more. Parties on college campus are pretty easy to come by, and they're usually all the same. 
Dimly lit apartments filled to the brim with college kids drinking out of red Solo cups are the stereotypical standards. But if you're with Mason Fiafia, parties might also feature a kava bucket. Kava is a Polynesian drink that's been around for almost 3,000 years. It's something that connects us as Polynesians together. There are no restrictions on kava in Utah. It can be found in stores as well as at kava bars. But it starts as a root. This root is dug up, ground up, and then strained much like tea or coffee. Fia Fia has Tongan heritage and started mixing at 18. He says his straining methods have changed over the years as not all methods give the same results. What's funny is a lot of people have used pantyhose, hopefully new, um, old t-shirts. Some people have poured it straight into the bucket and stirred it up like Nesquik. I don't recommend that. Once strained, people at the kava mix sit in a circle. Two claps, <laughs> begins a new round, and your drink is handed to you. Take a swig, and Mofi Takafua says most find the taste a little hard to swallow. It tastes like dirt. <laughs> um, that's Honestly, that's what it tastes like. It tastes like dirt, straight up. But he says he doesn't drink kava for the taste. It relaxes you, like your mind and body, and just makes you feel good. You know, you're not stressing about things that are going on in your life. Takafua says when he mixes with friends and family, it's almost a type of therapy for him. We're able to bond more and be able to just enjoy each other's company, really. The conversation and especially the music. Fia Fia says Kava connects him back to his Tongan heritage. It connects us back to our roots. Tongans have a very strong belief that we are connected back to Fonua, or our land. And by us drinking a root, which comes from the land, we are connecting ourselves once more with that heritage, with that land. But not all Polynesian cultures include kava the same way in their traditions. Fia Fia says the drink itself varies between cultures. For Tongans, we like our kava strong. Fijians tend to like their kava a little bit more smoother. Samoans, I'm not sure. I've never mixed with some Samoans. So what I do, I'll let you know. Kava isn't just for Polynesians. Fia Fia has made it his goal to introduce anyone who has an interest in kava to the tradition. The beauty of it, of Polynesians and Tongans, is we welcome everybody in. It's kind of the Tonga, which is the Tongan way. I'm Emma Fates. This piece comes from our partners at Utah Public Radio. And now, the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. The big news this week, the BLM's alleged damage to the Mill Creek Dinosaur track site. The federal agency was working on replacing a wooden boardwalk at the site when observers reported heavy equipment on and near sensitive areas. Doug McMurdo at the Times Independent has more. I've covered the Bureau of Land Management for all of my career. And, you know, they have made mistakes and they've made really bad decisions, but they've been pretty honest for the most part. So I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Their response to this has been less than adequate, though. Mm -hmm. And some of the uh, wording in their press releases 
has been um, questionable, and mm-hmm. they don't want to expand on that. So, um, you know, uh, Sophia and I at work, we were wondering why they used uh, present tense mm. when clearly we were talking about an incident that occurred prior, so it should have been past tense. So there was a little bit of caginess there with their, their, their press release that they put out. This is a world-class dinosaur track site. Uh-huh. I mean, it's something that you can hike up to and literally look at and, and see. Clearly, these these are dinosaur yeah. tracks. I mean, it's just, yeah. uh, these are fossils. And it's just um, incredible to me that this would happen. We have a letter also from Matt Seleski. He's in charge of uh, exhibits at the uh, New Mexico State Museum. Okay. And he's also a scientific illustrator, Mm -hmm. and he's done some of the work uh, on this site. So Mm -hmm. uh, he's adamant that that tracks were damaged. Mm -hmm. How he knows and nobody else, I don't know. (laughs) But um, we'll we'll find out eventually. I'm quite sure of that. Right. You know, and, and like you said, the BLM has made these two press releases as of this moment that we're talking They've been very vague, and they have not yet acknowledged that there is damage out there. And yet, we have witnesses on the ground saying that there is damage and that there will likely be future damage. Um, People are worried about the rock fracturing, and during freeze and thaw cycles, those fractures sort of opening up. Yeah, Sophia Fisher went up there, um, and she got photos, but the area was fenced off, and... um, She's a good citizen, so she stayed on on this side of the fence and sure. <laughs> didn't uh, sneak up to see what was going on. But anyway, you know, it's it's uh, an incredible story, and it's something that there is an awful lot of interest in. I mm-hmm. I was looking for an image, and every newspaper in Utah right. has has got this story on the front page. Did you go into the environmental assessment at all that the BLM did? Yes, we did. And if they did anything wrong, it's that they did not follow their own rules Mm -hmm. and their own assessment. And they didn't flag, Mm -hmm. properly flag the part of of the area that they weren't supposed to trample on. Thank you for the local coverage, Doug. Where else do you want to take us? Well, City Council of Moab on Tuesday, January 25th, had a a long and uh, at times excruciatingly painful (laughs) uh, discussion on a plan to build 161 units consisting of townhomes and apartments on seven and a half acres at um, 389 Cane Creek. This is a real sticky wicket for the uh, the city council. And uh, based on my opinion, this is a problem of state law. If you are a developer and you want to change zoning mm-hmm. for your development, you do not have to give the local entity that approves that zoning change the full story. You don't have to give them a complete plan. You don't. You just have to apply for a zoning change. You say, I want a zoning change. Here's why I think it would be appropriate. Right. And the law is very specific that once you get that zoning change mm-hmm. approved, you don't have to follow the sketch mm-hmm. plan that you gave them. Right now, the sketch plan is I want to build 161 units, townhomes and apartments, and 33% of those units will be set aside for workforce housing. Okay. That sounds like a win-win. Mm-hmm. Um, some people on the council believe that the percentage should be higher. Mm-hmm. Um, some, Kalen Jones, he's throwing the dice. He made the motion mm-hmm. to approve the development agreement and the zoning change. Mm-hmm. It was a 4-1 vote. Okay. Ronnie DeRessery was against it. Her concerns are wide and varied mm. and, and serious, but mostly it's just the process. You know, she can't trust it, and um, she doesn't. Uh, Mayor Pro Tem Tani Knutson-Boyd 
went so far as to suggest that the city was pushed up against a wall. They did pass it with reluctance, and now we have to hope that the uh, developer, mm-hmm. Jacob Satterfield, uh, does what he said. So four to one, it passed. And you're saying, you know, we know he plans to bring residential units and 33% set aside for workforce housing. Um, there's no guarantees, like it says in the um, subhead in the Times Independent. This complicated uh, land use law, I feel like the city and the county are dealing with this a lot, yes. where they can't necessarily approve a development wholesale. That's different for the county's like high density housing overlay ordinance, but the city doesn't have something in place here. Right. So they're rolling the dice on this one. Now what happens now that it's approved? Well, I think the the ball falls into uh, the developer's court right now. That's Jacob Satterfield. And there's, you know, there's some things that I just haven't been able to figure out. Has has he been able to purchase the property. Right now it's owned by Neil Johnson. I've heard that he already bought it. I heard that buying it was contingent on getting Mm -hmm. this zoning change. So I don't even know the status of that. But I I, I do know that um, he's been more than willing to talk to people and he has been agreeable, but Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately nothing that he's agreed to uh, has any real real metal behind it. So it now has R3 zoning, is that right? Yes. Um, you know, if this development goes forward or if any other development goes forward, they will still have to comply with the rules of R3. They do. Uh, they do. And like I said, it's close. It's just under 10 acres. Uh, he's going to keep two one-acre lots, mm-hmm. rural agriculture, I believe, mm-hmm. the, the current zoning. And they're jumping to R3, which has a whole lot of hoops to, to mm-hmm. go through. So, But he could be in R3 and build a whole bunch of townhomes. Well, let's let's move on. Like we were saying before we started recording, there's a lot on the inside of the paper, too. Um, I know you want to mention an article about the school district. Yes. If you've ever wanted to be a substitute teacher... <laughs> but didn't want to bother going to college to get that degree to make you an educator, now's your chance. (laughs) The Grand County School District is looking for substitute teachers. All you need to do is pass uh, a background check and have a high school diploma. So we have a sub shortage, and it's largely driven by the impact of COVID-19. Yeah, and Taryn Kaye, superintendent, said that Grand County has always had a shortage of substitute teachers. It's just okay. been exacerbated with COVID. Um, a teacher gets symptoms, you got to quarantine for five days. Mm-hmm. So on average, they're missing like 10 staffers a day. Oh, my gosh. Uh, not the same 10 staffers, but that, sure. that's quite a bit. That would cripple most sure. most businesses. I mean, they have a lot of employees, but still, that's that's a lot to be out. And it's my understanding that they currently only have like a handful of substitutes. Correct. You have Taryn Kay in this article saying... You know, there's not a lot we can do right now with COVID. Um, the legislature has made local control very difficult, meaning, you know, they can't require that people wear masks again. Yeah, not only have they got a, uh, there will be no mask mandates, mm-hmm. but there will be no closing of schools either. Yeah, so schools, it's being put on the onus of our local schools to figure out how to stay open when they have, like the article says, like 10 staff members at yeah. a time sometimes just not av- available to show up to work. This this pandemic um, is really destructive in so many ways. It goes way beyond the deaths, as as horrible as as they are. But people are leaving the medical profession Mm -hmm. and the teaching profession Mm-hmm. In droves. It's just too much. Yeah. It's just too much. Mm-hmm. And um and I and I get it. 
Doug McMurdo, editor at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. It's not every week that a 112-million-year-old dinosaur track site makes the news, but when it does, it can be big. Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News highlights the national attention on the damages and what their local reporter observed. I feel like a lot of people are hearing about this because it's been covered nationally. There was a crew at the Mill Canyon Dinosaur Track site that was replacing an old wooden boardwalk. And they inadvertently drove their heavy equipment across a drainage where a thin layer of dirt covered a dinosaur trackway. So Rachel Fixon wrote about it, and she went out there to take photos of the site. And I mean, right now the site is closed off because it's like a construction zone. But she found, and this was echoed in the article that she wrote, um, that the site isn't like completely damaged, um, but there is some noticeable damage to a few tracks. So this, like you said, made national headlines. Does the Sun have any comments from concerned community members? Yeah, so Lee Shenton is the president of the local Gastonia chapter of the Utah Friends of Paleontology. And that chapter has contributed volunteer hours to the Mill Canyon dinosaur track site over the years. They were saying that, you know, when you put weight on these fossils, they'll fracture. Um, So it's really easy to damage the track surface. And then a couple other people were saying that it's really unfortunate fortunate that there was no paleontologist who was on the crew um, who maybe could have like informed the construction crew Mm -hmm. about what the site was and what to avoid and it just kind of opened this discussion on there should be local experts there's a bunch of these like fragile sites around Moab and so Mm -hmm. I think like it's kind of opening this larger discussion that the BLM should be better about hiring experts and people who actually know the sites that are being worked on. Yeah, I, you know, that was something that was popping up is a lot of um, people who had raised concerns were pointing to not necessarily the person or people who had driven this heavy machinery to the boardwalk, mm-hmm. but p- pointing to the lack of a paleontologist in the Canyon Country Field Office right. since the last one left in 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also, you know, saying, you know, Utah does have <laughs> a very active state paleontologist. Mm-hmm. who had told, you know, state media that he would have been happy <laughs> to come right. down and provide his expertise about mm-hmm. this, what really is what people in the scientific community are calling a world-class area mm-hmm. for paleontology, but also for science. Anything else to mention about this piece or Rachel's coverage of it? So uh, the BLM has thus far declined to answer specific questions about um the tracks and sensitive areas on the site and kind of like, honestly, like any questions about what happened. Mm -hmm. Um, But they did say that before work continues, a regional paleontologist and the state paleontologist will be on site. Now, moving on to some events. Uh, What is going on in Moab? Fill us in. Yeah. So on Tuesday, February 8th, um, the last Science Moab on Tap of the winter season um, will go on. And the presenter is Michelle Rebin, who is the manager at the Moab Mosquito Abatement District. And so it's going to be really interesting to hear from Michelle. Um, She's spent eight years studying mosquitoes, um, and she studied them kind of all over the place. Um, Most of her research was done when she was at Western Illinois University. Um, She holds a PhD in environmental science. So, yeah, she's 
an incredible speaker and an incredible scientist. Um, and she said that studying mosquitoes is really interesting because there are a lot of different pathways that scientists can take to it because mosquitoes have such a larger impact on their environment. So studying mosquitoes has to do with, you know, water quality and public health and microbiology mm. and to the larger natural environment because mosquitoes are you know, one of the deadliest predators in the world. That's interesting to think about. Right. Like when you think of what's the deadliest predator in the world. Yeah. You think of these large mammals, mm-hmm. um, but not ne- not necessarily the mosquito. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, they can carry mm-hmm. these really deadly viruses. Um, and then also they don't really have any like natural predators. Mm-hmm. I mean, birds and fish will eat them, but mosquitoes can like repopulate so quickly that yeah. it's really hard for birds and fish to keep up with them um, and really hard for humans to keep up with them too. I think Moab specifically cares about mosquitoes a lot. Um, mm-hmm. There's a lot of debate this mosquito season about mosquito fogging, right. um, but also the abatement district was really worried because in 2019 there were a couple instances of West Nile virus. Mm-hmm. Moab is kind of this unique area in the desert because we have this wetlands preserve mm-hmm. where a lot of mosquitoes can live. Um, And also a lot of people are gardening here and farming and mosquitoes can live in pretty much any like standing water. Yeah, so there's a lot of standing water in Moab and thus a lot of mosquitoes. So you talked to Michelle um, and it's coming up on Tuesday? Yeah, Tuesday, February 8th. um, And she'll discuss like different types of mosquitoes and the larger impact that they can have specifically in Moab. Great. And I know that the Sun also has some coverage about spring sports. Yeah, so despite the cold this week, spring (laughs) is slowly getting nearer because registration for spring youth sports is open. And so spring means the soccer and volleyball seasons, which are two of Moab's most popular sports. And soccer is open to kids in grades pre-K to 8th and volleyball to grades 3rd to 8th. And both sports are co-ed. And the season will run from late February to mid-April. Um, so I talked to Patrick Trim, who is the City of Moab's sports director. And he said the spring season draws up to 350 kids. Hmm. Um, usually 250 to 300 play soccer hmm. and 50 to 80 play volleyball, um, which seems crazy to me. That's a huge amount of kids. Yeah, so um, soccer, the soccer teams will all play each other at the ballparks. And volleyball is done in more of like a travel tournament style. Okay. So spring sports are open. Um, Sounds like it's really a popular program. Yeah, very popular. Patrick was saying that there's no limit on how many kids can sign up. um, And the only limiting factor is how many coaches volunteer. Mm. Um, But anyone can volunteer to coach. You just have to be willing to give your time Mm -hmm. and have patience for children (laughs) who are learning how to play sports. Sure. Yeah. Did Patrick (laughs) say that, you know, there was a need for volunteer coaches? Yeah. He said there's always a need for volunteer coaches. um, And the recreation department at the city offers training resources to help anyone learn how to coach. Allison Hartford, staff reporter at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. That's it for the Weekly News Reel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News Podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU Community Powered Radio.